So what if when people thought of you, they thought of joy? What if when uh, they imagined you, when you came to mind, they immediately imagined a person who was free from all anxiety and worry and discontent and fear, a man or a woman content, restful, happy, at peace? What if upon seeing your face or hearing your name, they pictured a person characterized by a thoughtful, stable, consistent smile? I don't know what people think when they think of you, nor do I know if you care, I suppose, but let's just say for the moment that we should care a little bit about what people as a whole think of us because what people as a whole think of us probably says something about who we are. So again, what if when people thought of you, they thought of joy? Or better yet, maybe we should ask it this way, what if when you thought of yourself, you thought of joy? What if, when describing yourself, honesty compelled you to use words like content, restful, happy, at peace? What if you knew yourself to be, in the core depths of your person, in the words of 1 Peter 1.8, quote, filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy? I think we can assume a couple of things. I think we can assume that we all want joy. Now, some of us may say that we don't, but if you don't think you want joy, I think I'm pretty certain that what you don't want is actually a misdefinition of joy or a misunderstanding of joy. I think if everyone in the room were to have a clear picture of joy, a clear uh, vision of what it is, I think each person would say, I want that. I think that you see our desire for joy imprinted all over our culture. We have five states in our country with cities named joy, Arkansas, Illinois, Oklahoma, Texas, and West Virginia. We even named a crater on the moon joy. It was originally named Hadley A, which is kind of boring, so not too long ago, it was officially renamed Joy by, I'm not making this up, the International Astronomical Union's Working Group for Planetary System Nomenclature. (laughs) I'm guessing that renaming Craters Joy is about as jolly as it gets in their committee meetings, you know what I mean? Speaking of naming things, we love the name Joy. Some people are born into the name, Bill Joy, Benny Joy, Elijah Joy, Martha Joy. Others, no doubt some of you in this room, when your parents held you and looked in your face for the first time, they decided that the best way to describe this tiny human being would be to call her Joy. It's not just cities and craters and people either. I was able to find four bands named Joy, 14 albums just called Joy, and over 19 songs simply named, simply titled Joy by artists as diverse as Marvin Gaye and Mick Jagger, Whitney Houston and the Newsboys. Joy is the name of a computer software programming language, a perfume, a radio station, multiple U.S. Navy ships, and my personal favorite, dishwashing soap. <laughs> Joy is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Uh, we, no one wants to be joyless, less still a kill joy. We play games on our joy stick and go for joy rides. We sing and jump for joy, and we smile joyfully as we enjoy our bundles of joy. I think it's safe to say that we humans have a thing for joy. I think you can also assume, though, that many of us are confused or skeptical about joy. If I'm being honest, when I hear the word joy, part of me pictures a person who's just a bit too jolly for my taste, if you know what I mean. I mean, I don't have a whole lot of rules in life, but one of them is don't trust people who are always smiling. (laughs) And I'm a smiley guy. And maybe you think that's dumb or offensive, or maybe you agree, but what I think we can all agree on is that talking about joy is worth our time. 
And that's what we're going to do together this morning. We're going to talk about joy. We're going to unpack joy, and we're actually going to ask three specific questions of it. What is joy? How do we get joy? And why would we want to get joy? But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. First, let me say welcome to Christ Church of Ornogo. It's always good to see your faces. It's good to be here. My name is Michael DeFazio, and I'm a professor down the street at Ozark Christian College and also a part of the CCO family. And it brings me joy to be able to share here. And so whether you've been here since day one or if this is your first time in the room, just know we're very glad you're here. We're very excited to share this time together with you. As Luke mentioned, we are wrapping up our series called Keep the Words. And in this series, we've been studying the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is probably one of the most well-known books of the Bible in our culture. And oftentimes, people associate it with these crazy images and symbols and predictions about the world and history and the end of things. And what we know is that the book of Revelation is actually not as much about the end of the world as it is about the ruler of the world. And so what we've been doing in this series is not trying to unpack all of the imagery and symbols. That's valuable for a time. But what we've been doing is focusing in on the commands. The imperatives is the technical term. The commands. The things that this ruler, this king, this lord of the world is telling us to do. The ways he's telling us to live. And so we've looked at some of these things. Come and see is how we started. We looked at the command to repent. We looked at commands like worship and be faithful. Last week we talked about this command to come out from the world and be separate so that we could be sent back into the world on mission. And today is our finale in the series and we're talking about this word rejoice. Rejoice is a command that is commanded to us three times in the book of Revelation. And I just want to right up front here, start by looking at these uses of this command in context. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out. We're going to flip through these. If you're new to the Bible, the book of Revelation shouldn't be hard to find. Just start at the very back, flip through the table of weights and measures, maybe a couple of maps, and you're going to see at the top of your page, Revelation. If you're brand new to the thing, then the way it's divided, know this is chapters and verses. That's why there's numbers after it. So follow, if you can, to Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to be reading in verses 10 through 12. This is the first time we see the command to rejoice. And the context for this statement is this war, this battle going on between the enemy, this dragon that represents Satan, and and the people of God, the people of the Lamb, the people of Jesus. That's us. And so there's actually a victory here that we see being celebrated, and that's where the rejoicing comes. And let's look at the details of what it says. Chapter 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and all you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. So right here we see we've got some complicated things going on. On the one hand, you have the obvious reason for celebration, that the serpent has been defeated, that the dragon has been been tossed down. But you also have this reality that the way in which he's been defeated is that Christians are losing their lives. People are dying. And so there's a paradox here. And right from the start, we see that rejoice in the book of Revelation is spoken into many different contexts, many different types of experiences. Let's keep turning forward to chapter 18, verses 17 through 20. This, once again, is the conclusion to a section in Revelation, and it's the conclusion to this fall of the great city of Babylon. 
Now, for John's readers, Babylon represented Rome. It's kind of a biblical symbol for all great cities. And what's being described here is the city's being destroyed. It's falling. And so if you imagine in our context, it's like if you take New York and D.C. and L.A. and put them into one city, and then that city is destroyed, this is the response that's called for from that kind of a situation. You're going to notice here there's a couple of responses. You'll see the wrong one. You'll see the right one. Let's pick it up with the phrase, every sea captain there in verse 17. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea, will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, woe, woe to you great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. And then verse 20, rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets. For God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. You can see two responses here. One response to the world falling apart is, whoa, whoa, woe to us, woe to the city. One response is to rejoice. Last use comes in the very next chapter, probably the same page in your Bibles, chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear, and fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Here we see this great imagery of a wedding supper celebrating the union of God's people with our Lord, with our Savior, with Jesus. Three uses, very different contexts, a bit of complexity here, and we'll unpack what the words mean in a moment. For now, know this, the word rejoice is simply the verb form of the noun joy. Be joyful. Have joy. And I want to go ahead and tell you the big idea for this morning, the main thing I want to communicate, but I want you to know from the start that until we get to the end, what I'm saying won't make full sense. But here it is. The path to joy is to choose joy. That's what I want to say today. The path to joy is to choose joy. So let's start with the question, what is joy? And I think when we start with this question, what is joy, we probably ought to start our answer by saying what joy is not. Now, forgive me if this is cathartic, but I really do think this is important for us to make sure we know what we're not talking about. And for one thing, we're not talking about cluelessness. Joy is not cluelessness. This just sort of smiling because you're ignorant of how bad the world is. You know who smiles a lot? Kids, children. And that's awesome. Let them smile. Let them dance, let them sing. If you're happy and you know it, because that's good, because one day they're gonna wake up and they're gonna realize that it's hard to be happy in this world. They're gonna understand that it's difficult to be joyful in a world where, where little boys get turned into soldiers and where little girls get turned into escorts. It's hard to smile and sing in a world where promises are often broken and mouths often go hungry and relationships fall apart as often as they stay together. I mean, sometimes people are smiling not because they're strong, but because they're weak. They're not joyful, they're clueless. And ignorance may be bliss, but it's not joy. Joy is not turning a blind eye, just sort of not being aware of what's going on in the world, nor, secondly, is joy pretending. It's not cluelessness and it's not pretending. It's not just sort of acting like, oh, I know it's bad, but I'm gonna act like it's not bad. I'm just gonna kind of forget all that and compartmentalize it and put it over there. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about smiling as if the world wasn't broken. 
Talking about smiling even though the world is broken. So let's talk about what joy is. And I want to give you a few definitions. Two from uh, people who've taught me and then my own best guess at trying to define this thing. One of my favorite ones comes from a teacher who I have learned, at least been dead for a long time. His name's Carl Barth. Great gift to the church. And one of the ways he defined joy was three words. A defiant nevertheless. I love that. A defiant nevertheless. Well, I know the world's bad, but I'm going to defy it by saying, nevertheless, we will celebrate. Here's another definition from one of my coworkers. thought this was helpful. He defines joy as an abiding inner confidence that all is well. I like that too. Good. An abiding inner confidence that all is well. And so there's this inner confidence that, that stays with us, that, that no matter what's going on in the world or in our lives, all is well. Here's my best attempt. An indestructible smile deep in your soul. That's what I think joy is. An indestructible smile deep in your soul. Let me unpack this for you. Start with the word smile. A lot of times when we talk about joy, one of the first things you'll hear is, well, it's not happiness. Just don't confuse it with happiness, which fine and good. It's true. There's a difference. But let's be honest. They're pretty similar. Like if you're never smiling, if you're never happy, then you probably, if you're never these, you probably don't have joy. So there's a smile aspect to joy that is very much a part of it. And yet notice it's a smile that is deep in your soul. In the Bible, joy is often associated with the heart, especially the Old Testament. And we read that and we think, well, that means that joy is an emotion because for us, heart is a place of emotion. I love you with all my heart. I felt her pain with all my heart. But in the Bible, heart's not a place of emotion. Heart is a place of leadership. The heart is the executive center. The heart is the control room. The heart is the part of the person that governs all the rest of them. It's like talking about the core, that thing down at the deep parts of us that, that governs everything else about us. That's what the Bible's talking about when it says joy is in the heart. And I think in our language, the best way of getting at this is to say that joy is deep in our soul, a smile that is deep in our soul. But don't miss the first word. It is indestructible. It is not destructible. It is not something that can be pushed away or annihilated or denied. I'm thinking about verses like Psalm 46, 1 to 3. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Some of y'all know what it's like for the earth to rebel. And it's difficult in that situation to think about being anything but afraid. The Bible's talking about this is a situation in which we will not fear. This is a situation in which we will rejoice. And speaking of the Psalms, I think exhibit A, from the Bible anyway, when it comes to joy, has got to be David, that great king of Israel who wrote so many of the Psalms. But before we look at what he wrote, let's acknowledge this guy had a lot of reasons not to be glad. There are a lot of things about his life that we would look at and say, man, I'm going to let you off the hook if you're kind of grumpy. You know what I mean? I mean, for starters, he was the youngest of eight brothers, which not only means he got beat up a lot, it also means he wasn't going to get much of an inheritance. And when you add this to the fact that, I mean, you guys, many of you probably know this, in the biblical cultures, seven was a number of completion, right? So when you have seven sons, you're good. Like, you got a full quiver. And then you have another one? He's like the ultimate oops, you know? It's like, Jesse, how many sons you got? Oh, I got seven, plus one. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was probably his nickname, plus one. If Twitter was around back then, David's handle would be at plus one because that's probably his identity as a young guy, you know? 
And growing up, most of his best friends were sheep because <laughs> he spent all of his time in the pastures trying to protect these, these sheep from lions and wolves. Didn't really have a whole lot of human company in those days. As he got older, some cool things happened, like he was named king. But think about the situation in which he was named king. He was named king while the other king was A, still alive, B, didn't want to give up his throne, C, had serious anger issues, and D, liked to throw spears at people he didn't like. You know what I mean? Hey, you're the king here in a bit. Now watch out for the spear coming your way. That was David's life. He spent his best years on the run, hiding out in caves, searching for shelter and food and peace. And when he finally did get to power, he made some decisions that messed up his own life. You know the story. David's supposed to be away at war, but he's not. He's hanging out in the palace and he sees this beautiful woman and he wants her. And he's the king, so he has her. And long story short, he covers up his sin by putting to death this woman's righteous husband, to which God responds by saying, because of your sin, this child will not live. He did go on to have many children, sons and daughters, but later in his life, when he's supposed to be enjoying his twilight years, one of his sons forces himself upon one of his daughters and then rejects her. And another son responds to this by going to war against that first son. So while David's supposed to be enjoying the good years, his sons are literally at war with one another. This guy has a lot of reasons not to be glad. Yet it was David who wrote the following in Psalm 9-2. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. Psalm 32, 11, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 40, 16, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, The Lord is great. And Psalm 64, 10, The righteous will rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. All the upright and heart will glory in him. If I read all the times David mentioned rejoicing or joy, it would take the remainder of our time this morning. Joy is indeed a defiant nevertheless. Joy is an abiding confidence that all is well, no matter what's going on around me. Joy is an indestructible smile deep in your soul. And I don't know about you, but that's something I want. Which takes us to our second question. How? How can we get this thing called joy? How can we be persons who rejoice? There's a lot of things we could talk about here. We could talk about how joy is one of those things that if you try to look straight at it, you might miss it. It's kind of like chasing a butterfly. You try all day and you're probably not going to catch it, but if you just lay down on the grass, chances are it's going to float up and sit on your nose. We could talk about that. We could talk about the importance of, of dying to self And the reality that selfishness and joy can never exist in the same person. If you're being selfish, you can't be joyful. And so if you're as a person still focused on how can I get what I want? How can I meet my needs? How can I achieve my personal goals? If that's like your drive in life, you won't have joy. And we can specifically talk about the importance of focusing on other people. I mean, remember when I was a kid in children's ministry, they'd have these joy campaigns, and J was Jesus, and O was others, and Y was you, you know, Jesus, others, you. That's pretty good. It's pretty true. But what we're going to do is we're going to focus on this word, rejoice, this word we are to keep. So let's make sure we have our definitions right. There's a couple of words used in the original language that are translated rejoice in the book of Revelation and in the Bible as a whole. And the first one, the main one, is just, it's just the basic word for, like I said, joy in verb form, to rejoice. It just means to be merry, to be glad, to be happy, to have joy or be joyful, right? That's what it means. 
Another word that's used in Revelation in these verses I just read to you is, is kind of a thicker concept. It's used about 15 times in the New Testament, and most of the time it's used in both Testaments. It kind of has a relational flavor to it. It's the rejoicing. It's the joy that you experience like when a newborn baby is born or when you're sharing a good meal with friends. It's the word used four times in the story of the prodigal son when this young man goes off and squanders his wealth and then is reunited to his father. Rejoicing ensues. Of course, in the Bible, this rejoicing and revelation has to do with a right relationship to God. Those are the words. So with all that in mind, again, I think, what is it to rejoice? Simply put, it's to choose joy. And that'd be easy if it weren't for, you know, like life, reality. It'd be one thing if the Bible said, rejoice when life is going great. Rejoice when all is well. But that's not what it says. It says rejoice when all is not well. More accurately, it says rejoice always. But just remember the variety of situations in Revelation that we saw people rejoicing. And think about how this is backed up by the rest of Scripture. Paul says in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again, rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always. And some translations say, always be joyful. Man, this is tough. This is not like an optional thing. This is not like a, a suggestion or advice. These are commands, and they are sometimes hard. Freeing, yeah, but hard. The Bible puts joy in the non-optional category. You can no more be a follower of Jesus and have no joy than you can and have no love for other people. But joy is not without competition, that's for sure. In any situation in which you may choose joy, you're going to have to choose it over all sorts of other sensible, logical responses to what's going on around you. I mean, if we're going to choose joy, we're going to have to choose it over anger, for instance. And I don't know about you, but when somebody does me wrong, my first response is typically not to smile, right? I mean, disappointment. We're going to have to choose joy over disappointment. You wanted something, but you didn't get it. And when that happens in my life, typically I don't start by celebrating, which may be okay, but at the end of the day, what the Bible says, what's not okay in that situation, whether the disappointment comes at home or at work, in relationship to a task or a relationship, whether the, whether the, 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 the desire that I had that didn't get met was, was legitimate or illegitimate, what the Bible says is not okay is that I fail to rejoice. If we're gonna choose joy, we're gonna have to choose it over worry too. That's one of the toughest ones. I mean, we worry because we feel like we're supposed to. We feel like worry is part of being responsible. I mean, disappointment's one thing. We already didn't get it. Now we can deal with it. Worry's tough because we don't know what's going to happen. And so we feel like one of the best things we can do in response to the future is worry about it. And yet right after Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always, he says, do not be anxious about anything. That's another command. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, present your requests to God. Apparently, we're going to have to choose joy over worry. And maybe the toughest competitor of all is sorrow, grief. I mean, surely this isn't included in the always of rejoice always. Surely the Christians in Revelation weren't really praising God the day the market disintegrated or they found out that their friend was put to death, and yet it is included, and yet they were rejoicing. Now hear me say this, I don't think the Bible is saying, stop being sad right now. No, that's not what the Bible's saying. One of the most unhealthy things you can do when grieving is try to short circuit the process. Even Jesus wept, but God is saying, even in the midst of your sorrow, be joyful, Listen, I know how crazy this sounds. I understand how ridiculous and impossible this feels. I've been there. I know what it's like for mom to walk into the room and say, dad's moving out twice. 
I know what it's like for the doctor to walk into the room and say, I'm sorry, we couldn't find a heartbeat. It looks like your baby has died. Three times. I know what it's like to not want to come to church because you're afraid that people are meaning well, but they're going to give you these empty religious cliches that don't touch the depth of your pain, that don't get in contact with the depth of your sorrow. And I'm not saying I've had some sort of a horrible life. I got lots to be grateful for, past and present. And I would never presume to claim that I've been exactly where you are. But what I'm saying is I know enough to know what it's like to think that your pain and your grief are going to be the last word in your story. And yet the Bible says... Rejoice. On what basis? For what reason? Why? That's always the most interesting question to me. Why be joyful? Because there's plenty of reasons not to. There's plenty of reasons not to be joyful. There's plenty of reasons to be angry and disappointed and afraid and sad. And there were similar reasons when John wrote the book of Revelation. They had the same problems we do, except you add to it the fact that being a Christian could cost you serious money could cost you friends, could cost you work, could cost you family. And in some cases, they knew of at least one person who had already lost his life because he pledged allegiance to Jesus alone. And in essence, John writes into this situation and says, don't forget to smile, don't forget to sing, don't forget to rejoice. I mean, can you imagine what their neighbors were thinking if they actually did what John said? What could you people possibly have to be smiling about? Imagine they feel the same way our neighbors feel when they look at us. They know we can't hide from the pain in our world, and they know the pain in our stories, and they see us, and they probably say at times, what could you people possibly have to be smiling about? And what they don't know, what you can't see if you're currently saying no to the gospel, is that this indestructible smile deep in our souls is not coming from around us, and it's not even coming from within us. It's coming from above us. Am I right? But sometimes I worry that our thoughts about God are not worthy of him. I mean, after Easter, here's the church, we're going to start a series called God Is, where we're just going to focus on the attributes of God, and I'm excited for it. And I want to challenge every person in the room to be there every week of that series, because what we think about God often is, quite frankly, kind of childish. You probably know you're not going to get through a message from me without a story about my kids. And I've told you my daughter, Claire, like loves to say ridiculous things. Most of what she says right now has to do with the movie Frozen. Anybody else in the room? Y'all know what I'm talking about? She knows everywhere. It's hilarious seeing a three-year-old walk around, walk around talking about, I don't know if I'm elated or gassy, but I'm somewhere in that zone. <laughs> I mean, it's great. She did come up to me the other day and she got down and she got real serious, looked at me in my face and says, Daddy, I will never shut you out. <laughs> I'm like, thank you, thank you, Walt Disney. Thank you, you get it, this is wonderful. But so we're driving home from church uh, not too long ago. We're coming down MacArthur Boulevard and uh, it, we're just driving along, coming home and she looks out and she says, Daddy, look at those trees God and Jesus made for us. I'm like, man, I love CCO, teaching my kid to see God. This is great. I said, yeah, aren't they beautiful? We talk about how they're beautiful and she says, yeah, they're cousins. And I'm like, wait a second. I, you're not a heretic, are you? You know, and I probably should have let it go, but I didn't. I said, oh yeah, the trees are cousins. And she said, no, God and Jesus are cousins. And I'm like, what are those people teaching you, man? I don't know what's going on. <laughs> so most of y'all are wise and you would just sort of leave it there because she's three, but I didn't. I decided to press a little further. So I said, well, you know, Claire, actually God is one. To which she responded, yeah, I'm, and I know, and I'm three and I'll be four on my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay for her because she's a child, right? We're not children anymore, and it's time for our thoughts about God to grow up with us so that they reflect who he truly is. 
I had a student the other day, and he didn't agree with this, but he was telling me a story about a guy he heard was talking about prayer. And this guy was saying, when's the last time you asked God how he was doing? Seriously? Like God's sitting up there needing us to ask him how he's doing? I mean, a God who needs us in any way can't stabilize our smiles, which is why it's good news that God doesn't need us. I mean, God's not up in heaven wringing his hands, wondering what tiny little you and tiny little me are going to do, whether we're going to do the right thing, otherwise this whole plan is thrown into chaos. I mean, are you kidding me? Come on. You know what God is doing right now? I can tell you what God is doing right now. He's smiling. Yes, he hurts with the hurting. And yes, his heart is full of compassion towards those who are, who are in pain, who are in need. But at the core of his conscious, consistent experience, his pure, unadulterated joy, God is smiling because God experiences every moment the truth about himself. He's not worried. He doesn't fret. He's fine. Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And that is true. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And you know what else is true? The reverse is also true. The strength of the Lord is my joy. Please hear me say this, because if you don't, I'd rather you ignore everything else I've said this morning. We choose joy because of who God is. This isn't some kind of psychological mind trick. This ain't some self-help strategy. This is a realization that we cannot help ourselves. So it's a good thing that we serve a God who is sovereign and strong. It's a good thing that we serve a God who is capable and willing to redeem anything. You want to be more indestructibly joyful? You want to have the chops to choose joy with consistency and confidence? Then get to know the creator and sustainer of all things. And you will discover that we're not smiling about life. We're smiling about him. In the book of Revelation, we are commanded to rejoice, to choose joy, regardless of the situation, because we've seen something, because we've gained a new perspective. And what we've seen and gained, is not a new truth about life, it is the truth about God. I mean, are we not talking about the same God written about in these pages? Is he not faithful and victorious and true? Is he not omnipotent, stronger than any strength, and incapable of being overcome by any power in heaven or on earth or under the earth? And is he not omniscient, knowing all things past, present, and future in one great eternal act of loving, divine, comprehensive attentiveness? And is he not omnipresent, transcending the boundaries of time and space so that it is very true to say that he is everywhere, and it is very true to say that he is right here in this room? I mean, did he not part the waters and deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt and defeat armies to bring her back from exile in Babylon? Did he not rescue Rahab and redeem Ruth and educate Solomon? Did he not send his son to die on a cross so that you and I might be forgiven and then raise him from the dead to demonstrate his victory over all manner of evil? Does he not dispel demons and save sinners and bring life out of death? Yes, he is. Yes, he did. Yes, he does. And it is because God is who he is. It is because God is almighty that we will come and see and we will repent. And it is because God is sovereign that we will worship and be faithful. Because God is holy, we will come out from the world and be his. It is because God is transcendent and imminent, both out there larger than anything, beyond all things, and in here closer to us than our very breath that we will celebrate. It is because God provides and sustains that we will smile. And it is because God is wise and happy that we will sing. Because God is God, we will rejoice.